I mean, you guys can have a seat. If you're here for the first time with us today, we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, we don't believe that it's an accident that you're here. Uh, we value each and every single one of you. Um, as we've talked about earlier, you know, this past week we had Kids Week, uh, which, y'all, that was a lot of fun. God really moved in the live. And the, yeah, praise the Lord. God really moved in the hearts of the kids. I mean, just my own kids, uh, they were talking about Kids Week, uh, talking about the fruits of the Spirit and all the things that God, how God works and lives. And so it's been fun for us. Um, I was actually the snack guy, so that was really fun for me as well. Yeah, so uh, also coming up, uh, this, starting this Wednesday, we've got uh, our summer Wednesday gatherings. They're going to be right here in the room, uh, in this room, every Wednesday night at 7, so this is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, we'll be going through the book of James for some weekly wisdom. That's kind of what I've tentatively uh, titled it, so uh, if you have a better name, let me know. Um, but today we're going to be diving right back into John we're going to be diving into John 14 with Jesus' upper room teaching where he is having dinner with his disciples right before his death. And so we're looking at this one teaching. We're going to be looking at this one teaching all summer long because it is just so rich. We have 14 verses today, um, and we could spend several uh, weeks on just these 14 verses. You know, so far in John 13, in this upper room setting, just as a bit of a background, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. Uh, we saw Jesus predict Judas's betrayal. Judas then left. And then last week, with, now, with Judas now gone, Jesus began this final teaching talking about the importance of loving one another, specifically Christians in the body of Christ loving one another. You know, the entire, in this entire teaching, all summer long, it is targeted and directed towards the church. It's tor- directed towards the people of God, those who believe in Jesus as the Son of God. So last week, again, we saw the importance of uh, loving one another, of how uh, Jesus has given us this new commandment is to first love God and then to love one another. But for today, I want to point out something that Jesus brought up back in chapter 13. It kind of bleeds over into our time today. So look back at uh, uh, verse 33 of chapter 13, and this is what Jesus says while they're kind of at dinner. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you. Where I am going, you cannot come. So get this. Jesus is at dinner with them. He just shocked them by washing their feet. He tells them that one of his disciples will betray him. And now he looks at them and says, um, I'm with you now, but where I'm going, you, uh, you will look for me, but you're not going to find me. And so Jesus uh, was talking about love, but I guess Peter kind of missed that whole, th- that whole love thing. And he only picks up that Jesus is living, uh, leaving them. Because look what, he, look what Peter said in, in verse 36 of chapter 13, later on down. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And then it says, uh, Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. But of course, Peter missed what he was saying. And says, I will follow you, I'll lay down my life for you. And Jesus is like, okay, Peter, that's a nice gesture. Um, but actually, you're going to deny me three times. Um, not once, but, but three times. And we've seen this type of conversation happen often throughout the entire book of John where Jesus says one thing and the, and the disciples totally miss it and they're just kind of talking past each other. But I wanted you to see those two verses at the end of John 13 and verse 33 and verse 36 because Jesus is beginning to set up with those verses what he's talking about more intently up in John 14 that we'll look at today. You know, Jesus basically said, he said, I'm going somewhere and you can't go now, but you can go later. We'll see more of this in John 14, but what he's talking about is what we now know of as heaven. Jesus is saying at this dinner that he's going to leave his disciples here on earth and then go to heaven. 
But the disciples at this moment, they had no idea what he was talking about. But we'll see Jesus explain it to them in John 14. We'll see how heaven uh, gives us hope today, leading us to our main idea. Jesus left earth and gave us the hope of heaven. That's the direction we're going. We're talking about heaven today. We've got uh, five points. We've actually got the five P's of heaven. But today's not entirely about the future of heaven, but more how our future hope, how it affects us today. So I do want to point out, Jesus, he never mentions the word hope or heaven in our passage, but he does paint a picture of heaven that provides us with a future hope, and it gives us something to long for. You know, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, he talks about how creatures, us people, creatures, are not uh, born, including animals, are not born with desires unless a satisfaction for that desire exists. For example, a baby feels hunger, and so food exists. A duckling wants to swim, and so water exists. We desire companionship, and so other people exist. And then C.S. Lewis, he goes on to say that if we find in ourselves a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. There are desires and longings that we all have that often go unfulfilled. And as C.S. Lewis says, it's not that the world is a fraud, but rather it's a reminder to us that heaven is real and that all of our unmet desires and longings will one day be fulfilled in heaven. And so, yes, we're going to see a picture of, of a future hope after this earth in our text of heaven. But even more so, as I've said, how our future hope of heaven, how it changes us and it gives us hope for today. I guess we could say Uh, Today is more about heaven on earth than heaven after earth. But we'll touch a bit on heaven after earth. And maybe you're familiar with Jesus' most famous prayer, the Lord's Prayer, that teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come down on this earth as it is in heaven. And Jesus teaches us that it's good and right to beg and ask God to plead for heaven's kingdom to be seen on this earth. So yes, there is a place called heaven uh, that is not on this earth, but what I don't want us to miss is that some of heaven's benefits are accessible to us today. Now we have to be really careful with this, because it's easy for people to talk about the kingdom of God and its benefits, but then leave out the king. It's not uncommon for people to desire heaven and all its secondary benefits like peace and no more pain and no more tears and to have all our unmet desires fulfilled. I mean, who doesn't want that? Again, but I think we have to agree that it's not uncommon for people to want the kingdom of heaven, but yet reject Jesus the king. Or you know what else happens often? Uh, even in like the, more so with Christians, is that we can preach and teach about the kingdom and the king and the kingdom and all their benefits while forgetting that it comes with a bloody cross. Like we think heaven is great and the love of Jesus is great. We want all of that, but a bloody sacrificial cross, not so much. Let me remind us is what Jesus talked about back in John 12, a couple days before this dinner. Basically saying we bear fruit in this life through a spiritual death. Jesus said whoever loves his life loses it. So this is the normal Christian life. It's a life of denying ourselves and choosing the way of Jesus, which let's just say isn't easy. And I wanted to bring all of this up because in many ways the disciples are likely all over the place with their thoughts and emotions. Like, they just don't know what to think. Like, this whole following Jesus thing, um, they're picking up. It's a little bit harder than they thought. 
And at this moment, they're likely afraid and confused or sad or maybe even mad. Because remember, Jesus came in four days prior to this setting, this meal, riding on a donkey. They were ready, ready to crown Jesus as their king and savior. And then he gives a really hard teaching on serving and losing your life and death and unbelief. And then Jesus goes into this upper room with him, with, 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 their, with his disciples, and he shocks them by washing their feet. and says, this is how you're to live your life. Living a life of service to others, denying yourself, taking the low place. And then he tells them, one of his close disciples will betray him. And then he tells them to love one another. And then he says, oh yeah, I'm leaving you and you can't come with me. And then, oh yeah, by the way, Peter, you're going to betray me three times. And so I get this, the impression that they're thinking this whole following Jesus thing wasn't what they initially thought. Like they liked the king and the kingdom, but not this whole take up your cross thing. Thinking this seems like a little much. Can we just talk about how this had to have felt like a whirlwind of a week for the disciples? Where everything seemed to be happening way too fast all at the same time. And these disciples can't figure out what end is up, what's happening. And again, uh, likely a little confused and shocked and sad and mad and just all the things all at the same time. Kind of like their life is just caught up in a tornado of thoughts and emotions. And Jesus is preparing them for his impending death. And again, this man who's been uh, their leader and their teacher and their guide, he's now saying he's leaving them. Like, this is a lot for the disciples to process. And just maybe you've been there. Or maybe you're there now. And life is happening way too fast and things are spinning and stirring or maybe even way too slow and you're tired of waiting. And you're tired of the drudgery and the slowness and you too are just tired of being confused. And to that, let me say, whether life seems way too fast or way too slow, the point is life is confusing and it's hard. It's often difficult, is it not? And you're just caught up in this tornado and whirlwind of competing and confusing thoughts and emotions. Well, that's where the disciples are in this moment. Likely, very likely, that's where they are. And you know what Jesus says to them? Y'all, this has just ministered to my soul all week long. Look at verse 1 of chapter 14. Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Church, memorize that verse. Let that verse stick to your brains because we need this. Right after Jesus tells them he's leaving them and that Peter will deny him, Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus, in essence, is saying, trust me. Don't let your heart be worried. Be at peace. Hear that today, Christian. Let not your, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. And let's remember, he's speaking to his disciples that are already following him. And when he says, believe in me, this is not a salvation thing. This is a trusting thing. Our faith is not simply a one-time salvation decision, but it's also an everyday, ongoing decision because every day we wake up and we're, waked up, we're, we're, we're faced with a decision of faith asking, do we, trust, do we trust the Lord? Do we trust God today? Not just for salvation after this life, but with our life today. With our kids, with our family, with work, with our finances, with future plans and worries and, and fears. What, just name it. And Jesus says to us today, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. So the disciples, they were in this crisis of faith. They were worried, anxious, fearful. They were confused. And he says, just trust me. I know this isn't always the case, but from my own personal experience, most of my own fears and worries can in some way be traced back to my lack of trust in God and his goodness. 
I can say that, yes, I believe in God, but sometimes, just to be very raw with you, when life gets hard, that goodness part, that doesn't seem so easy to see and to trust at times. But yet, time and time again, as I look back, God has proven himself to be good over and over and over again because he is. And the problem for myself, oftentimes in these moments that seem like a crisis of faith, it's not so much that I lack saving faith, but the problem is oftentimes that rather than trusting my stable, steadfast, immovable, and unchanging God, I rather put my trust in something else that only God was made to hold. Like maybe people or work or my wife or money or comfort or all the good gifts that came from God, but they're not God. And Jesus exhorts both us and the disciples to believe in God and to trust him. And one of the many benefits that we get in Christ is that we have an immovable, trusting father that can provide peace and comfort in our life. And not just in heaven, but also here on earth. Showing us our first P. Number one, the peace of heaven. Not with an I. Uh, not like a slice of heaven, but peace that comes from heaven. The peace that allows our hearts to not be troubled. So I'm not going to spend much more time on this, but I do want to point, out, point this out. You know, I've thought about this a lot over the past several years because God's word tells us in Philippians 4, 6 that there is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And Christian peace, I think, is one of the more misunderstood concepts that people often have. You know, I heard this from a friend the other day, and it really stuck with me. He said, Christian peace is not the absence of pain or problems, but rather it's the presence of God in our pain and problems. Christian peace is not simply a euphoric emotional state that is based on the way we feel in a relaxed state. And I'm not saying that doesn't happen when we're at peace, but it can't primarily be that because what happens when we get a migraine or when we get sick or when we're sad or when Christians are being persecuted or going through extreme hardship, peace is not simply the absence of hardship or pain. No, it's the comfort of God's presence in them. And we've seen throughout the book of John that Jesus had emotions of anger and sadness and he cried and he was troubled, but yet also because of who God is and his character, he had to also be at, at peace during those times. And so peace is not based on our emotional state, but rather Christian peace looks like choosing to trust Jesus when nothing makes sense and we can't see or know why things are happening the way they are and your hearts are at rest, knowing that God holds all things in his hands. Christian peace says in the middle of extreme hardship, God, I trust you, and because of that, my heart is not troubled. Yes, in heaven, there will be no more pain or sadness, but also in heaven, there's, everybody has a full trust in God. They fully see his goodness and power and are eternally put at peace because faith is fully realized. Today, we can, us today, we can know that and we can draw from that, and we can have peace that comes from heaven. Our hearts cannot be troubled. When we obey Jesus' words in verse 1, believe in God when we trust him. So what is one of the reasons we can trust him? Well, let's keep reading. Look at verses 2 and 3. We're just getting started. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not also, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And that, that where I am, I am, you may be also. So how does Jesus provide present-day peace? Well, he provides a future hope. When Jesus says, in his Father's house, he's referring to the house of God. He's speaking of heaven. And he's speaking to his true disciples. He's providing hope to them by saying he's preparing a place for them in heaven. 
and that he will come again to bring them back with him, leading us to our second point in a, another P. Number two, the place of heaven. The place of heaven. You know, at this meal, Jesus is saying to his disciples that when he goes back home to be with God, he will begin preparing a place for them. Because God's house, it's Jesus' house. The place of heaven is the house of God. You know, there's all sorts of talk and speculation about what heaven will be like, and we're not going to get into all of that today, but the point I want to make clear is that heaven is a real place. And what will make heaven so great is not necessarily the absence of pain and problems, which, yes, that will be nice, but what makes heaven great is that God will be there. And the reason I point that out is because the same thing that will make heaven great is the same thing we have access to here on this earth. In heaven, we will literally be in the house of God in his full presence, seeing him face to face. And we can be hopeful and excited knowing that for all those that will be in heaven, as verse 3 shows us, Jesus is praying, preparing a place for us. Like, that's what Jesus said. Like, Christian, this is incredibly humbling and hope-filling. Because get this, Jesus, while we're here on this earth, is preparing a place for us where he will be. I mean, how incredible. And as I thought about this this week, it just made me so curious as to what Jesus will be preparing for each of us. You know, when Kelly, when I asked Kelly to marry me 13 and a half years ago, I took her on this long, elaborate, all-day journey. She thought I was going to ask the question about 12 times that day. And then I just drove her back to, our, to her house, and she was just super disappointed. Because I never asked while we were out on the adventure and I walked her to her door, I told her uh, goodbye, and then she opened the door to her house, and I just kind of followed her in. And her entire house, it was covered in roses and candles and about 100 pictures all over the living room and the kitchen and the foyer, and we walked around just looking at all of them, all our memories together, and she was smiling from ear to ear, and she knew exactly what was happening, and thankfully Kelly doesn't remember this, but y'all, I stumbled through the entire thing, but she still said yes. But this is what I want to point out. Her roommates had prepared the space while I was stalling, taking her to a bunch of random places. And that day, she thought nothing was happening, and she was growing disheartened, and she was growing bummed. But while she was disheartened, her roommates were preparing the place for her proposal. Christian, that's us while we're here on this earth. God is working in our life, and we can't always see what he's doing, but we can trust that if we are in Christ, he is preparing a place for us that will be greatly enjoyed forever. Christian, there is a place in heaven that Jesus is preparing specifically for you. Take heart. Press on. Endure. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Throw your life upon the goodness of God, trusting that he sees all and that he knows all and that he is preparing a place for you. So how do we find the peace that comes from heaven? We long for the place of heaven. But we also remember that in that place there is a person leading us. There is a person leading us to number three, the person of heaven, our third P. I've said this already. But again, um, the best part of heaven won't be the place and the benefits, but rather that God himself will be there. Jesus will be there. I mean, just think about this. If heaven didn't have God, it wouldn't be heaven. It would be hell. So again, we've seen the peace of heaven, the place of heaven, and now number three, the person of heaven. So let's keep reading to see more of this. Look at verses 4 through 11. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? 
Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you do not know him and have seen him. Philip said, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak in my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So there's a lot in there. And we'll see our fourth point in this as well. But as we think about the person of heaven in our third point, I can't help but notice what Jesus says in verse 7. Look at it again. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip says uh, to Jesus, show us the Father. And then Jesus responds again in the second half of verse 9 into the first half of verse 10. Look what Jesus says back. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And then in verse 11, he says, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. So what Jesus is saying here to his disciples is that if you know Jesus, you know God. Again, the person of heaven, it is God himself. God is three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All of John 14, that we'll see this week and next week, shows us the Trinity. If people ask, where do you see the Trinity, just bring them here to John 14. And you know what? All, they, will, they will all inhabit heaven fully. And Jesus is saying... If you want to know God the Father, get to know Jesus the Son. He said it several times throughout this book, but he's saying it again. And this time, he's saying it specifically to his disciples. The person of heaven is made available to us to be known while we're here on earth. Which for us as a church, this is why we talk about Jesus so much. If we want to know the heart of God, we must explore the heart of Jesus, which is what we've seen throughout the book of John. Which also means and tells us that someone can't know God unless they know Jesus. If someone says they know God but reject Jesus, they don't know God. They can't. If someone rejects Jesus, they reject God. Which is why we are so urgent about making the name of Jesus known in places all over the world where Jesus' name has never even been mentioned. The name of Jesus must be known in order for someone to know God. And what this, what this also means as we talk about heaven is that Jesus literally brought a part of heaven down to earth when he came to earth. God became a human and lived on this earth. And so how do we today bring heaven into different places? We bring the name of Jesus to those places. We talk about Jesus. We live like Jesus. We talk like Jesus. We minister and serve like Jesus. And we do this and when we do this, we're being used by God to bring a slice of heaven into the different corners of our life and into the life of others. New City Church, the name of Jesus, it's a big deal. The person of heaven is massively important. And so as we've talked about the hope of heaven, we've seen the peace that comes from heaven. We've talked about the person and place of heaven. And then le uh, next, that le this leads us to number four, the path to heaven. If Jesus is preparing a place for his followers in heaven... And there is a peace that comes with God and being in his presence and trusting him. Then in line with our last point, the question we need to also know is, well, how do we get there? How do we get to heaven? 
knowing how to get to a place that you want to go, it's kind of important. You know, like if someone invites you somewhere and you really, really want to go, um, but you don't know how to get there, it, guess what? You're not going. <laughs> I don't care how passionate you are about that place. If you don't know how to get there, you won't get there. And y'all, this is a really important question. And what is so alarming to me, especially in our culture and especially in the Tampa Bay area, is how few people actually know the Bible's answers to this question. And I was in church for 16 years. I knew the name of Jesus. I knew stories about Jesus. Went to Sunday school, Bible studies, did all the Christian things. I wanted to go to heaven. I desired to be in heaven. I thought I was going to heaven, but guess what? I didn't know how to get there. I had the wrong directions. My directions that I believed would get me to heaven were to be a nice, good, moral person, and then I'll go to heaven. But guess what? Those were the wrong directions. Now, this is a bit alarming, but guess what? Those are the directions that lead a person directly to hell. And I can't help but wonder how many people in this world and in our city and in our neighborhoods are following those directions thinking that they're going to heaven. You know, I saw a study by Christianity Today that came about, out about two years ago. It said half of Americans think that being a good person will get them to heaven, which means half of the people we talk to in our city, they have the wrong directions. They think they have the directions to heaven, but yet they have the directions that lead them straight to hell. This is alarming. This is alarming. The mission of God, it's urgent. If you want an easy way to share the gospel with people, go around your neighborhood or campus and do a survey in a loving and a compassionate and gentle and a non-combative way and make this one of your questions. Say, can I ask you a hard question? And ask, do you know how to get to heaven? And most will say, be a good person and do good things. And then ask, would you be interested in me sharing what the Bible teaches about this? And then take them to John 14. Because look what John 14 says, starting in verse 4. Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Again, he's speaking of going to heaven here. And look what one of his disciples says, says back. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Thomas says, I don't know how to get there. Asking, how do we get to heaven? And Jesus answers in verse 6. He says, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So how do we get to heaven? What makes us a Christian? It's Jesus. Jesus is the only path to heaven. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. The only way for us to be with God, it's through Jesus. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, he defeated sin and death and made a way for us to be made clean of our sin for us to be with God. New City Church, yes, that is a widely quoted verse. John 14, 6, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, through Jesus. But yet still, half of Americans say that being a good person is the way to heaven. And it's just a big, bold-faced lie. So what's the path to heaven? The Bible is clear. Jesus is the only way. It's not through our good works. It's not through Buddha or Muhammad. It's not through enlightened thinking. And it also doesn't just happen. And there are also not multiple paths that lead to heaven. No, Jesus is the only exclusive way. Y'all, there's so much more we could say about this. But I want to keep moving to see our last P of heaven. We've seen the peace of heaven, the person, the place of heaven, the path to heaven, and then lastly, where we'll spend the last about 15 minutes of our time, 
Uh, Number five, the power of heaven. New City Church, this is really good news because we're not left powerless on this earth. No, we have been given and entrusted with divine power. These next few verses, they're incredible promises, but this is also where things can go a little crazy. This is where I should insert kind of like a Lord of the Rings illustration with being entrusted with power, uh, but we're not going to do that. You get the idea. Um, Because as I said, each of these five points, we need more space and probably a sermon for each one. So hang with me here in this last one. And and I want you to really put on your thinking caps in this last 15 minutes. So with that said, if we read these last three verses, if we read them in isolation by themselves, things can get kind of wonky. Like creating a, a sort of a false hope. While at the same time, when these are read and interpreted correctly, these can be very hope-filling and encouraging. These are great promises. There is great power in these words. And so as we tackle this, we need to slow down and be reminded of how we read and study the Bible. Because taking verses in isolation, like we're, uh, this verse we're about to read, can easily steer us down the wrong path. And throughout history, we've seen these verses steer people in the wrong direction. And just as a quick Bible interpretation lesson, lesson, whenever verses or passages of Scripture seem strange, we have to look at them in light of the rest of the Bible and within its full context and use that which is abundantly clear to interpret that which is kind of fuzzy. And so that said, let's look at verses 12 to 14. See the power of heaven. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, these are some incredible verses. Extremely hope-filled. They're promises, but there's two ditches for us to fall in here. In one ditch, on one side of the road, it's a little too hopeful. And on the other ditch, we dilute its power. So we want to stay between the ditches today. And as we look at this, we'll have two sub-points in this last point, seeing the power of our works in verse 12 and the power of prayer in verses 13 and 14. So look again, look again at verse 12. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I, will, that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Jesus, in essence, says, If we believe in Jesus, we will also do the works that he did. And... Even greater works. That's what Jesus said. Leading us to our first subpoint here, 5a, the power of our works. Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will do the works that he did, and also greater works than he did. This is a this is an astounding statement. It's a promise. But it's one of those promises where maybe you you're scratch your head on and wonder, like, is this really true? And the danger, again, is to either throw it out or just take it too far. Again, those are the two uh, sides of the road we need to avoid. And what I think is helpful in order to avoid these two ditches is to figure out what, is abund- what it absolutely is not saying first. So if you look at the beginning of verse 12, Jesus said, Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. So that first phrase, whoever believes in me, is important. Because it tells us that whatever works Jesus is referring to in verse 12, it's for all Christians. Not just like mature super Christians or for pastors or for missionaries. No, he said, whoever believes in me, that's what he said. The only condition for these works are belief in Jesus. Oftentimes what happens in this verse is people immediately jump to the miracles of Jesus. 
and think we can do greater works than Jesus as in more spectacular or more miraculous than Jesus. And that's just bad Bible interpretation and not true. And the reason that's wrong is because nobody has ever done the quality of miracles that Jesus has done to his extent. Nobody's turned water to wine, multiplied bread, bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, walked on water, healed the lame and the sick, and also, also raised a dead man to life. Like nobody other than Jesus has done all of those things. Maybe healings and miracles, yes, but nothing like what Jesus did to his extent. And those are just the miracles recorded in the book of John. So it would be silly for us to believe that we will do greater miracles than Jesus did as a collective whole. And on top of that, let's not forget that it says, whoever believes in me will do these things. Meaning, this is for all Christians, not just a select few. Now hear me, I'm not saying miracles don't happen. We pray for miracles and healings, and it's good and right to do so. But we need to stay between the ditches here, because Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians 12 that only some in the body of Christ will have the spiritual gift of healings and miracles. I personally don't have those gifts, at least I don't think I do. But when Jesus says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and even greater works, it can't mean only miracles. It also doesn't exclude them. And so we need to ask, what are the works that Jesus is talking about? And when we look at the book of John, and the works of God are spoken of, it's always seen in the entirety of uh, the grand redemptive story, story. Meaning the miracles, they serve a purpose. Healings served a purpose. All the works Jesus did in his ministry were done so that people would believe. All of Jesus' works pointed to God the Father. Jesus came to point people to God and give them a way to God and to give glory to God. And so when Jesus says our works will be greater than his, there are several different ways we could look at this. As one scholar put it, he said, it's not that our works will be more spectacular and miraculous than Jesus' works, but rather greater in extent. It will be far more reaching. It's not greater in quality, but quantity and reach. For example, Jesus' largest crowd recorded was 5,000 people, and still uh, many walked away and didn't believe. In fact, it dwindled down throughout his ministry to closer to 12 that truly believed. So Jesus' ministry shrunk. It did not expand and multiply. But then after Jesus left, how many people believed in Jesus at Pentecost? 3,000 in a day. The movement of Christianity after Jesus left, it began to expand and multiply day by day. That's a greater work. So here's another one. How, how many nationalities did Jesus reach? Two, Jew and Gentile. How many are we reaching today? In the thousands. That's a greater work. How far did Jesus' ministry reach geographically? not super far. He stayed in the same, within the same region. Christianity is now a global movement. Again, that's a greater work. Now I say all of this knowing that it's true of our collective efforts, but I also know that these are not each normative for the individualized Christian life. These are a picture of our collective efforts as a whole. And I do think that Jesus meant our personal works that we do will be greater than his. Not because we're better, but rather because his work is now complete and he is now working through us by his spirit. He wants to do more through us on this earth than he did by himself. And do you know what we have to offer through our labor that Jesus did not have to offer at this point in his ministry? The finished work of the cross. All Christians all over the world are able to do greater works than Jesus because we're able to offer to people the crucified and risen Lord that will take away sin where the presence of God can then enter into a person's life. That's a greater work. 
Jesus did not offer to enter into someone's heart where we today can offer to then, uh, we can offer God to then live inside of someone's heart to be forgiven of their sin based on a historical fact and not a future promise. When we share the gospel with people, we're literally offering the God of the universe who's over heaven and earth to enter into a person's heart and life. Jesus didn't offer that. Our work is greater. When Jesus walked this earth, earth, he was the presence of God outside of them. But when when we tell others of Jesus, we're offering the presence of God to enter the inside of them, in their hearts. New City, this is a greater work. Jesus turned the hearts of people to himself, and all true Christians do the same thing. That's the normative Christian life for all Christians at all stages. We do it through sharing the gospel and displaying the gospel. We display the glory of God. We display the fruits of the Spirit and we, by loving others. Like these are the normal Christian things that Jesus also did. In church, we do the same thing. Jesus came to point to God the Father, and that's what we do. We point to God the Father. Jesus was the presence of God in a single place. We can now offer the presence of God in every place, inside of every person. Jesus brought heaven down to earth, but now we bring heaven to the hearts of people. Again, this is the normal Christian life. We do the same works that Jesus did, but we also do greater works than Jesus did. Again, not more spectacular, not better miracles, but far more reaching with more to offer. And again, not because we're better, but because Jesus' work is now finished and he is now working through us. That's the better work that we're a part of. New City Church, this is an incredible honor. We have power from heaven that has been entrusted to us to be displayed through our works. Like, this is the normal Christian life. But then that's, let's look at back at verses 13 and 14. The last seven or eight minutes of our time here. Uh, with another head scratcher. Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. New City again, there's a lot of power in these verses I'm showing 5B, the power of our prayer. But again, we need to be careful of the ditches again here. And so let me burst your bubble really quick, just in case you were wondering. If you pray right now to Jesus and ask for a car and a really big house on the beach with a boat, and, uh, and you end the prayer with, uh, I ask all of this in Jesus' name, I hate to burst your bubble, but you may be disappointed. Because this is not like a magic wand prayer. But pastor, look what it says. Whatever you ask in my name, Jesus said he would do it. And so are you calling Jesus a liar? Can we even trust the Bible? And to that I would say, no, sweet Christian. Jesus is not a liar. And yes, we can trust the Bible. Again, we must always interpret that which is a bit fuzzy with that which is abundantly clear. And so consider this. One chapter later, just kind of turn the page in John 15. Jesus says something very similar. He says, if you abide in me, And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Yet again, an incredible promise. And here, Jesus gave a clarifying statement where abiding is the key to the asking. We also see a similar statement in in, in 1 John 5, where the condition to an answered prayer is asking according to God's will. John kind of explained it later in his later, later book. In John 14, verse 13 and 14, Jesus also gives a condition. And the condition is asking in Jesus' name. Asking, saying, if we ask in Jesus' name, Jesus will do it. And again, this is not a magical uh, way to kind of end a prayer to get whatever we want. 
And so we need to ask, what does Jesus mean when he says, in Jesus' name? That's the condition. And so if we use these other verses that are similar, that are a little bit more clear to help us, then we ask, like saying like when we ask according to God's will and asking abiding in God and and, and in his word, that we ask uh, that that which is in step with the heart of God, he'll do it. You know, one commentator said uh, that phrase in Jesus' name means we ask for something that Jesus would sign his name to. I know the thought that kind of came to me in my mind this week about this was asking according to Jesus' identity. Asking according to who Jesus is. And what was Jesus' identity? It was the heart and mind of God. Jesus often said, not my will, but your will, God. Jesus always deferred to God the Father. Well, so Jesus did two things to ask. Like, do we know God and do we know his word? Are we asking according to his will? Are we in a relationship with God? Are we getting to know him in his word? Are we asking for things that Jesus would sign his name to? But then secondly, are we even asking? The power that comes from heaven in our prayer is found in Jesus. Asking according to Jesus' name, asking according to the heart and mind of God, we need to ask, do we know Jesus to know what Jesus would ask for? Like, that's a great place to stop and reflect, but where I'm afraid we probably get caught up the most is that just maybe we don't even ask. We just give up quickly. We just explain away all the power in this verse. You know, James says in James 4.2, we have not because we ask not. But Jesus tells us in John 14, 12, if we ask in Jesus' name according to his name, if we ask for something that Jesus will sign his name to, he will give it to us. And I think we can get so caught up in trying to figure out God's will, to figure out what to pray for, that we forget to just simply ask consistently and earnestly. And may we be a church and a people. Oh, I've been so convicted of this this week. To just ask and ask and ask and seek to know God and to know his will and not get caught up in what to ask for, but more caught up in just knowing God and just communing with him in prayer and just asking and asking and asking. And a no or a not now to our request is simply showing us what is not the will of God. But he just wants us to ask and to ask. And yes, I know and I do want to acknowledge to end our time how hard it is to see prayer go unanswered. What a great way to end the time. Like, why do we pray and pray and pray and nothing seems to happen? Especially when it seems like what we're praying for is according to God's heart and will. That's hard. And I certainly don't claim to know all the answers. But I do know that God sees all and knows all and he always has what's best for us on his heart. And we can trust that a no to one of our prayers only means a better yes for us later. And why? Because that's the heart of God. God never downgrades, he only upgrades. Some of those better things we may see uh, in in this life, we may understand some of those things in this life, and some we might not know and understand until the next. And, And as I've thought about this whole, these 14 verses, I just can't help but imagine that many of those confusing things, those unanswered prayers, all the whys that we never grasp here on earth, I can't, on earth, I can't help but imagine all those things will be put on display for us in the room he's preparing for us in his father's house. 
We don't know. We don't know now. It may not seem beautiful to us right now, but when we're with Jesus in that place he's preparing, I can't help but believe we'll be moved to tears of joy seeing the whole story play out, seeing his goodness just on full display. But until then, he tells us today in those confusing moments, he tells us from verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. He's given us the peace of heaven, the person, the place, and the path of heaven, and he's left us with the power of heaven. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, do we trust him? Jesus has left us with some incredible promises today, a future hope that changes us today. But again, do we trust him? Do we trust him? I pray that we do. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. Sometimes we don't always see it. Sometimes we don't always fully realize it. We don't know all the whys to everything. But God, you tell us to, to, to take heart. May our hearts not be troubled. May we believe in God. God, you're preparing a place for us. God, there's peace that we can have today. God, will we see that and rejoice knowing that our future hope, it changes us today. God, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.